0: You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte,
1: Shanae Maripodi.
0: Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me to celebrate the 50th episode of the Writers Off The Page podcast. Before I get into things, I want to say a massive thank you to everyone for helping me get to 50 episodes. That's everyone who tunes in each week, the people who have written reviews, comments and messages about the show, and of course to all of the authors, illustrators, publishers and agents who have given up their time to let me pick their brain. Since starting Writers Off The Page, I've signed a contract for my own debut middle grade novel which will be out next year with Fremantle Press. It's very, very, very exciting. And I have to say that doing these interviews each week and taking on board the advice from those who have actually been there themselves is without a doubt what's helped me and motivated me with my own writing. One of the big things that I've learned is it's surprisingly invaluable to read and listen to authors who are outside of the genre you're writing in. I highly recommend it. If you've only been listening to interviews that relate to the genre you're working in, go back and give something else a go. Everyone has a story to share and you never know what tiny bit of advice could be that one thing that makes a difference to your own work. Now, enough about me because I have a guest who's patiently waiting to chat now, I might be celebrating 50 episodes, but Dervla McTiernan is celebrating the release of her latest novel. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that Dervla is a pretty big deal. She's the internationally best-selling and critically acclaimed author of The Ruin, The Scholar, and The Good Turn. And you might have heard that last year she signed a seven-figure contract with HarperCollins for three books. Wow. Wow. Everyone's been counting down for her latest novel The Murder Rule and it's literally just hit the shelves. Dervla McTiernan thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh my god thank you for having me Shanae. and I'm super excited about your news. I think we should turn the tables in this interview and I should be asking you some questions. No
0: definitely not.
1: (laughs) Congratulations The Murder Rule is
0: everything I wanted in a crime novel and even more than that.
1: Oh thank you that's really lovely to hear.
0: So just because it is brand spanking new, I'll get you to tell everyone a little bit about it before we get into things.
1: Okay, well, The Murder Rule follows the story of Hannah Rokeby. And Hannah is this young, idealistic law student. She joins the Innocence Project on the eve of their biggest case. They're trying to free somebody from death row, an innocent man from death row. And on the surface, Hannah is exactly what you'd expect her to be, you know, very bright and clever and motivated, kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed, kind of person who wants to change the world. But actually, if you scrape the surface, Hannah's very different. She's a lot darker, she's more complicated, and she's definitely working to further her own agenda.
0: Mm, Cryptic. I, of course, know what happens. Other people (laughs) listening probably don't yet, but are (laughs) going to rush out to find out. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of the murder rule and what's gone into making it happen, it feels like you were an overnight success. Mm -hmm. But was it actually like that on
1: your side of things? It actually was. I I know, (laughs) (laughs) I know people say it wasn't like that, but it did feel that way to me because I never expected my first book to get representation. I never expected it to be published and I definitely did not expect it to be a bestseller. I mean, you know, Sinead, what it's like when you're Starting out, I, I like I was really hoping when I sent out query letters to agents, I was like, fingers crossed I get a personalized rejection because that means they see, you know, hope and, and, and positivity. And I was like, I, I was writing a lot and I was reading writers' pet websites and they talk about, you know, the percentage rejection rate and I was really into my stats and I, I just had no expectation that anything would actually happen. And then, you know, I I had three offers of representation and then the book went out and there was a preempt and then it went to auction and all that was totally surreal. And then I had a year on the ruin where I was working on North with my editor and then the book came out and it got into the top 10 in Australia. And people were so nice to me. And it just I got to do writers festivals like my first book, I got to sit on the stage beside Louise Penny at the Adelaide Writers Festival. And there were like four or 500 people in that audience for Louise, clearly, nobody had any idea who I was. But to be sitting there and to be accepted as a writer and, and Louise was so generous and lovely and kind and encouraging and like, it was surreal. And to me, that would have been more than enough. That would have been everything. I mean, that would have been wildly beyond my everything. And yet it's kind of kept going from there. So even though like it's now 2022, and I started writing, you know, really seriously and like really making a really concerted effort at it in 2014. So that's quite a while ago now. It does feel like overnight to me. But so I don't in- know, maybe if we, if we talked about this in 10 years, I think I'd still feel like it was overnight. <laughs> well, it's
0: probably been a bit of a whirlwind blur, really. So when you came to Australia from Ireland, had you been writing back home already or did really you start that when you
1: got here? I, I was a lawyer in Ireland. I was a lawyer for 12 years and. I probably would still be a lawyer now if the GFC hadn't hit Ireland so hard. You know, I was—I had a small practice in the west of Ireland that I started when I was 26, which seemed like a good idea at the time, and uh, it was really successful until it wasn't. And then the GFC hit very hard, and that kind of forced us to reassess. We decided to move to Australia, and we made a kind of a pledged to each other my my husband and I we just said right we're going to do it our way this time like we don't we're not going to try and follow whatever rules we think exist we're not going to try and tick any boxes we're just going to live life the way we think we'd like to do it and see what happens and it still took me a long time to start writing because i had a, our little boy was born 5 weeks after we landed Holy didn't sleep molly. for three
0: <laughs> that's not what you do while you're pregnant <laughs> no, it
1: wasn't easy <laughs> um and then i i had to go back to work because i had to you know pay my share of the bills and all of that sort of stuff. And it just took me a long time to still sort of say, you know what, it's okay to go after my dream, even if I already know it's never going to happen. Because I, I was convinced I would never be published. And I was certainly convinced I'd never be able to make a living as a writer. And I had to get to the point where I was absolutely fine with both of those things before I could really give myself to it properly and just go for it, I think. And then I just fell in love, like almost immediately. Once I started writing every day, I just kind of fell in love with it. It just made me really happy. And I realised it was the little thing that I'd been missing. I knew I'd never stop writing. It didn't matter if I was never published. I would always write for the rest of my life. And that was it, you know. But getting published and for it to be able, to, you know, to actually be a full-time writer, that that's just, I I feel very lucky. And I, I never take it for granted. Like, I never think it's definitely going to continue.
0: So was the ruin the first manuscript that you'd worked on? Yeah.
1: Sorry, it was really annoying to people. But- no,
0: it's actually uplifting. hear of so many rejection stories and it just shows that it does happen. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to wait for years and years on end. But did you have, I mean, I feel like every writer is just crippled with self-doubt to some mm-hmm. some extent. Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea when you submitted The Ruin what the standard of work was that it was a bloody good story?
1: no i had no i mean i i still feel like an intense physical discomfort when it comes to my own work like i my whole body just rejects it you <laughs> know i don't want to read it when a book is finished and done and it's between the covers of a book i i've never read it again with the exception of reading you know excerpts when you're at a festival or something i've never opened that page to read it again and i never will i i just and and actually it's my biggest challenge with writing every time i sit down to write anything the first half hour is getting over my own discomfort with the day the work from the day before and and getting past that like anxiety and judgmental mindset and into the actual flow of working so I I never thought the book was spectacularly good I mean or not that I think it is now but like (laughs) I certainly didn't think it was going to be successful I had no way to measure whether it was good or not um and I still I'm just constantly trying to get better as a writer, you know, every, every time I'm inspired by other writers and trying to get better. So going
0: from that, I suppose, to then last year, I'm not going to ask any rude details, but (laughs) your seven figure contract is, oh my God, (laughs) nothing to be sneezed at. Most authors couldn't even dream of that and advances a a few zeros less than that, we will say, um, When you so, then I'm guessing when you got that first publishing contract, did you ever entertain the idea, even a tiny bit, of the success that could come from it or being not just able to make it make writing into a career, but a very successful one?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think we can all daydream, and those daydreams are not related to reality. Like, I still have daydreams about winning the lottery. And I just enjoy the fun of the daydream without ever thinking it would ever happen, you know? And so I think it would have been a bit like that with writing. I will tell you the honest truth that at some point when we we're living in our old house, I remember distinctly taking a post-it note at my desk and writing a number on it and sticking it on the wall. And it was like a fantasy number. Like I was delusion because I was like, I know what advances are and I know what are really good advances in Australia. And this would have been like a multiple of that. So I was like, not going to happen. And I stuck it on the wall. And at some point it fell off the back of my desk and fell down behind my desk. And when we moved house, I found it. And I was like, because we, you know, we've gotten past that point. And oh my gosh. I just couldn't believe that that, you know, that kind of reminded me how far we've come. But just like in all honesty, for me, the money's always about can I can I afford to carry my weight with our household and our children and the cost of that. And can I afford to, it's, I always counted in how many more years I can work, I can write full time. So like, I'm like, okay, how many years have I got that I know I'm going to be able to write full time? Okay. That's awesome. And then if I get to do another few years beyond that, that's the, always the aim. So I never think this success means I'm going to have future success because writing is not like that. Almost nobody has an upward, constant upward trend career you know, we go up and down and that's the nature of it. And I'm fine with that. I just would love to be able to do it for the rest of my life, please. And thank you. Well, this
0: is kind of a new tip that we haven't had on the podcast in all of these 50 episodes. I don't think anyone's ever mentioned, we'll call it a vision board before. So maybe that is the tip that maybe that's figure the on a Have it in front of you. While it's you're all working. about the post-it guys. <laughs> Your subconscious works. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that It's all well and good to talk about getting a good advance, we will say. It doesn't have to be a crazy advance, a good advance. But does a certain amount of pressure come with that and being able to deliver what's expected?
1: Yes, there's no doubt that pressure comes with it and you're very conscious that if you do get a very generous advance and you fail to deliver, the book doesn't sell, there's a very good chance that you're going to get kicked because you know publishers have long memories I think and if you're losing money on a book that's a hard thing to recover from and as well as that there are all the booksellers out there who may have ordered the books in in quantity and not been able to sell them and they have long memories understandably because it's bloody hard to run a bookshop you know so I think you can pay the price for that for sure and we you know I think that's talked about quite a bit the pressure of a bigger advance but the other thing that that you know I think beginning writers are less conscious of and certainly I wasn't aware of is the difference in support that a publisher can and will give when the advances are bigger and that makes a really big difference in a market that is really noisy there's a lot going on it's very hard for your book to find a spot on its shelf on a shelf and and get heard you know or be noticed and some spectacularly good books we all know have been published and, and sunk away quietly because People just, not enough people were aware of them. Like reading is wildly subjective. Not everybody is going to like your book. So it's about finding the audience for your book. And cutting through the noise to do that is hard. It's not something a writer can do by themselves, no matter how good they are on social media. You know, you need help and you need a great distribution arm behind you and the power of of a publisher to do that. So all those things are really difficult. And then on top of that, Even when a publisher gives it their all and does everything possible and no stone left unturned, books still fail. So it's like there's a weird alchemy to publishing. No one has quite figured out the magical answer. But having the support of a publisher is very helpful. And I would be, you know, really misleading people if I if I sort of suggested it didn't make a difference. It does make a huge difference. So is there
0: anything that you did with the ruin we'll go back to, when you first got published, obviously, like we've said, the writing has to be mm. a strong standard. That, without a doubt, the book's not going to sell if it's not good. But mm. in terms of putting yourself out there or doing anything to give yourself the best chance of mm. going forward as a writer and to stay published, that's a big thing that I only learnt since I started the podcast, that getting published originally doesn't mean you're going to stay published. Stay
1: published. I think it does start with the writing. And I'm just going to go back on that first before I kind of expand on it, because I had finished The Scholar before The Ruin was published. Um, and that really helped me because it removed that second book pressure. If The, if the Ruin had been successful, but also if I'd had the voices of people's responses to that book in my ears when I was only writing my second book, I might have struggled a little bit. So I had that book finished with maybe one edit left to go by the time The Ruin was published. That was a huge help. Was it with um,
0: publishers yet or just finished yeah. yeah. For yourself? I, I,
1: yeah. I signed a two book deal initially with Harper and then they asked me for a third before the scholar came out, I think. So that was the initial ones. So I was ready for Harper at that point. Um, I think I was always trying to get better. Like I, I love a good story and I love to sink into a story and I knew what I was trying to achieve. Like I had a clear vision about what I what kind of writer I wanted to be. And I kept reading writers who were better than me and trying to understand how they were achieving and, and learning and pushing myself all the time. And then in terms of like getting out there, like I will say this before I was published, I remember kind of worrying about, should I be on social media? Should I be doing this, that and the other? And a lot of people were doing it. and A lot of people weren't. And I had very finite time. I was working during the day. My kids were small I didn't have a lot of time. I had to make a choice. And for me, the choice was I could spend more time writing or I could learn how to use social media. And I just chose the writing because it made more sense to me. Now, after I was published, I did go on social media and I've slowly kind of learned my way around. Um, But it's still always first the writing and everything else second. It has to be, you know? And then the last thing I would say is I was given some really good advice um, by my... Publicist at Harper Collins at the time, I was up in Sydney for the, the Literary Bites thing that um, Harper run for a writers who have books coming out, and I was asking for some advice about all this stuff because it was so new to me. You know, being put on a stage and having a mic put in your hand, and suddenly you're answering questions about yourself, and like if you've never done any of that before, it can be quite weird. Um, so I sp- said to my publicist at the time, you know, I said, "Can really, What would you? Have you got any advice?" And she told me about an author she'd worked with before who'd had a book come out and had been, you know, had had a lot of buzz about it. And the author was really, really intensely uncomfortable with sort of that kind of, I don't know, um, people examining you, I suppose. That that sort of people coming along and being excited to see you felt really weird to her. Mm -hmm. And she was so uncomfortable with the attention that she kind of drew back into herself and kind of got all tense and stressed out. And afterwards, she said to um, my publicist, she said, look, I really regret that. I wish I had just enjoyed it for what it was and not worried about what it all meant or worried about my response to it, just kind of gone along for the ride. Because what she realized afterwards was, okay, people are coming along to see her. Those people want to have a good time and they're Mm going to have a good time if you're having a good time. And she wasn't really at the time. And so my publicist said, look, have a good time enjoy yourself, have fun with it. Don't take it all too seriously. And remember the people are there to enjoy themselves. We're not, we're not, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not going into a controversial situation. And I think as
0: well, I'm speaking in this sense from my time as a TV journalist, when interviewing authors or anyone in the arts or any, anything like that, like you said, you're not a politician going into something controversial. The person who's interviewing you wants to show you off. They want to show you at your best. They only have your best interest at heart. So, yes, be nervous, like 100% be nervous because it is something that is different to what most people are used to. But like you said, like it makes such a difference when people, you can tell people love what they do and enjoy it and they just want to tell people about it. That just shines through usually.
1: I think that's it. And there's, not, there's an author, I'm sure, you know, Natasha Lester, she's of course, from Perth, and she's a fabulous writer. If you ever n- listen to Natasha talk about her characters, she talks about her characters with such love and enthusiasm that I defy you to go to a Natasha Lester event and not want to read all her books immediately afterwards, you know, <laughs> because she just lets that genuine feeling she has shine through. And it's beautiful to be around that. So I think if you can just allow yourself to enjoy the process, allow yourself to, to love your book and talk about it in that way, I think that really helps.
0: And now you do, of course, for the murder rule. We've seen a really great book trailer come out. Was yeah. that something you've done from
1: the get-go? Well, um, Harper did a book trailer, I think, for the ruin in the early days. But that trailer was produced by Shane Slerno, who's my agent in LA, and he did, he's known for doing really good book trailers, um, and he he kind of takes it an extra mile. <laughs> Further than most um, so I was pretty chuffed with that I, I thought that was a really good intro to the to the story. Awesome so the three
0: book deal that you've got the murder rule is the first of the three is that right so okay. how much time do you have to deliver each of the books?
1: Mm, I'm behind at the moment <laughs> <laughs> I kind of went down the wrong path with something and then I had to reverse and start again um, usually I mean usually you have about a year but this time I'm going to do the next draft pretty quickly now and so I'd hope to have it done by say August at the latest Um, and then we'll see from there I mean it it won't be out until next year anyway but I obviously need editing time as well but I you know once the tour is done I will be home here and I will just be completely focused on the story and uh, you know I have a pretty good idea where I'm going with it so I think it'll come pretty quickly.
0: Well, I was going to say a year sounds really good if you're full-time writing until you see all the posts that you've done recently about the tour that you're doing for the, <laughs> the murderer. And obviously that's got to be factored into that year
1: as yeah, well. It's, it's so weird because when I was, before I was writing full-time, I could only write a couple of hours at night. Like I would work until two o'clock or three o'clock, pick the kids up from school, come home, do family stuff. And then when they were in bed, I could start writing around seven 30 or eight. Um, and I thought, my God, when I'm writing full time, I am going to write so many books a year. I'm going to be, you know, it's going to be all over it. But there's only so much really creative work you can do in a day. I mean, I think I top out like I genuinely, three hours in one session is probably the max. And then if I come back, you know, if I'm really, really driving a book forward, I could do three hours in the morning, maybe two in the afternoon, another two or three in at night time. Mm-hmm. Um, But that's if I'm really right in the throes of, like, I've got loads of material and I'm just getting it out. Um, Usually three to four hours a day of actual writing time is probably where I start to kind of top out a bit. And then I can spend other time doing other stuff like editing or drafting or social media stuff. But um, I I can't, like, the six, seven hours were a bit of a fantasy, really.
0: (laughs) So do you set yourself a certain goal? Is it a matter of, you know, you want to do that minimum of three hours or is it a word Mm -hmm. count or is it just purely getting something achieved?
1: Oh, I I need the motivation. So I usually do a really complicated spreadsheet where I work out. (laughs) I literally plot out, Sarah Sarah Foster, my buddy, I've shared this with and she thinks it's hilarious, but like I will plot out in advance. Okay. These three months, here are the days the kids are on school holidays. Here are the days these different appointments are happening. I'll block those out first. And then I start putting in the, the word counts with like higher word counts for days that I know will be good lower word counts for days where there are distractions and like like I just I even have a little I got my husband to show me how to do the macro so I can do the pie chart when I fill in my actual versus my planned like what percentage sounds really stressful (laughs) I love it I love because it feels so good when I'm hitting it I'm just like I'm in control um Which is delusional because like I could easily turn around and cut 30,000 words because I might just decide, no, it's not working. Or or, like with the murder rule, there are these chapters that are um, diary entries told from the perspective of the protagonist's mother. And they were really difficult to get right because they have to work on quite a number of different levels. I have like three complete, polished, perfected versions of those totally different from each other because I couldn't find exactly what I wanted to do until really late in the day. So like this word count and the target and the dates, like it's only a way to kind of fool myself into thinking I'm in control and that I'm moving forward, but it helps, you know. (laughs) So do you plot out your novels? I kind of do. I do. There's a book by Elizabeth George who writes very long, complex mysteries. She's a brilliant writer and she wrote a book called Right Away about her writing process. And it's, it's like, it's insanely complicated and and like difficult. The first time I read it, I thought she was nuts. Second time I read it, I thought, hmm. Third time I read it, I was frantically taking notes, you know? So I kind of adapted most of her method. And I do a lot of work on characters first. Then I write a list of maybe seven to 10 scenes that I'm most excited about writing. Like the ones I think, oh, these are going to be super fun. And then from that, I will draw like a rough outline but usually I'll just actually start writing I do about 30,000 words at that point and then I stop by then I have enough that I've kind of found the voice of the story I found the real meat of it and I know where I want to go At that point I'll write a full outline and usually I have to start again at that point usually I need to like start from the beginning that's the basic methods that I use now Mm, sounds really basic
0: <laughs> i say that sarcastically <laughs> it sounds very complicated but it obviously works so working. the question everyone always hates a little bit where do the ideas come from
1: what keeps them coming oh it's it's kind of like it's an alchemy of ideas isn't it it's like it's never one thing it's a combination of things together that finally makes something spark and in again i'm going to talk about how elizabeth george describes this she's like look I'm probably paraphrasing terribly, but my interpretation of what she's saying is that, look, there are any number of great ideas that in your mind you'll go, oh, I could do something with that. You know, I can see where I could bring that. That's clever. I can mix that with this and it would be this and it would be that. But unless you have an emotional response, you're going nowhere. Like and she talks about a physical, almost visceral response to the idea. And I totally agree with that. You need to feel. Really strong set of emotions towards your story, or it's not going to carry you through the writing of a complete novel. It takes so long and so much emotional energy to carry you. So I'm waiting to find a story that I can feel a really strong emotional response to so that I know I care enough about this that I'm still going to care about it in 20 drafts time. You know, if I can't feel that in the beginning, I'm definitely not going to feel it in years' time. And so they've all come from different places, like the ruin sort of sprang fully formed I had that that scene with Maud and Jack at the beginning on the stairs in my in my mind and I I knew who they were I didn't know how they had come to be there or where they were going but I needed to write that story to find out the answers to those and then the scholar was about a particular character that I had a very strong feeling for which is uh, Della Lambert even though she doesn't actually appear in the pages at all and then with the the murder rule it was always about Hannah it's always about Hannah Ropey and, and who she was and where she was going
0: and was there, am I right that with the murder rule, there was a news article originally that yeah, started read, that seed?
1: Uh, absolutely. I read an article about a, a young woman, a young Irish law student who had gone to the States for a summer and she volunteered for the Innocence Project while she was there. And when she came back to Ireland, she couldn't let go of this case. Um, so she kept working it, kept making phone calls. Ultimately, she tracked down a retired police officer who pointed her to some hidden evidence, some evidence that had been hidden from the defence in that case. And because of her work, this man was freed from prison. And I thought, wow, this is incredibly inspirational. But I didn't see a story there for me until quite a few years later when I either I either I went and looked up the article again or I just came across it. But either in either way, I dug a little bit deeper and I read a bit more. And it turned out that even after she found this hidden evidence, it took another five years before he was freed. And at that point, he only had he'd been in prison for well over 20 years. He'd only three years left to run his sentence. And I just thought, oh, God, like that's it's so much darker and sadder and more complicated a tale than was originally presented. And I started to think, well, why why was the less complex tale told? Could it have been maybe the editors preferred a cleaner take of the newspapers, you know, or maybe the I thought to myself, maybe the PR team of the Innocence Project was pushing this inspirational tale, which, by the way, was just in my head. I had no reason to think that. But it made me think as a writer, you know, okay. What if you're working for the Innocence Project and you were doing everything you can to make a change, like really important change, and nobody's listening? Because like we've talked about, you know, we're living in a noisy world where people don't care. Nobody's listening. Okay, what would you do to be effective? Would you take one little step off the righteous path if there is one? You know, would you take a little step? and, And if that worked, would you take another step and then another? And how far would you go? And at what point do you start tipping over to the other side again, you know? So that once I started thinking like that, I thought, okay, hang on. There's something interesting here that I'd like to explore.
0: So do you make sure you've got. Like to what you just explained, then quite a fully formed idea before you sit down and start. oh
1: yeah I I will have a very good idea what I'm trying to do I might not know like I start with a notebook a new notebook and a pen and I'll start with usually a character as a starting point and I'll build that character out quite a bit until other characters start to come from that because of that person's relationships but even before I actually put that pen to paper I have a pretty good idea of the scenario I'm placing that character in so when I the day I started to build out Hannah I knew that she was going to join the Innocence Project. I knew what she was going to be doing there. And so forming the character was easier because I had to ask myself, well, what kind of person would do those things? What kind of person would, would end up there? And then what life experiences would form that person? And so it all starts to kind of fill in from there in wider circles.
0: Was it because of the Innocence Project that you based the novel in the States?
1: Yeah. It so. was um, naturally had to be an American mm. story. Um, but I, you know, America has always been a very fascinating place. You know, I grew up in Ireland. We absorbed a lot of American culture. I spent two different summers working there and one summer in Bar Harbor where part of the book is set when I was a young law student. Although I worked as a chambermaid and a waitress and had a, <laughs> had a blast. I didn't really do anything <laughs> meaningful. Um, but I have really strong memories you know of Bar Harbour and I always wanted to write a story there so it was a good excuse to, to set it there.
0: So did you have to do any extra travel for research have you been able to? with COVID No in the time? I couldn't
1: go back I'd love to have gone back I didn't I did plan a research trip it didn't come off now I was lucky because I had gone to BoucherCon in I guess it was 2019 and On the way, that's a Mystery Writers Fest um, kind of convention in the U.S. I went over when I got the Barry Award. And so on the way home, I went to Virginia um, and I spent three or four days there just around the university um, trying to find people who talk to me, (laughs) doing a bit of research. So even though I didn't get to go back, I had that to draw on. And I had I had obviously my my four or five months in Bar Harbor um, many years ago, so I was lucky in that sense. And then beyond that, it was all internet research. But it was hard not to be able to go. I really I really think that's important.
0: Did you get to make any contacts with people at the Innocence Project?
1: Actually, I did. I got really lucky because I tried quite a bit before I went over to set up a formal interview and failed completely. And so then I was at the university and I just went to the law school, which has, by the way, no security. And I walked in and I went into the canteen where the very nice canteen uh, where the law students have their lunches. And I just started chatting to people. They've
0: now set met, up security based on this.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they, might, they might change things over. Um, but I met two young guys who had been working, students, law students who had, visit, who had both worked on the Innocence Project the year before. So I was able to have a chat with them, which was great. Wow, right place
0: at the right time. So your first book, The Ruin, got picked up, um, got optioned for film by Colin Farrell's production company, and now The Murder Rule has already been picked up to be a TV series. Is that right?
1: yeah um fx is a big channel in the u.s we would probably be a bit less familiar with it over here but it's a it's a cable channel in the u.s it goes into 90 million households which is like basically everybody who's got cable in the u.s gets fx and they're known for making premium drama like um you know uh, the americans or sons of anarchy and Nick talk shows like that so um my agent Shane sent it to them and, and then he rang me to tell me that they were really interested and then it's kind of all gone from there. So it, I'm really chuffed that they like it and that they want to make it. It's pretty it's pretty great. So how much involvement do you get to have in that? I've had a bit of a little bit of involvement with the FX one, which has been really cool. I've, I've been able to kind of provide some of my background stuff, my background work, you know, my all my character work and some of the kind of background on the story that on the characters that doesn't ever make it into the story but is but is all there um and sort of talk about the things that were most important to me with the book and i've also been able to see the right the screenwriters takes which has been really cool because they think a little bit differently and it's been fun to see where they match mine and where they would probably go a slightly different direction. It's been really interesting. I've loved I've loved every bit of that.
0: So do you know will they be deviating a little bit from
1: I think so. I mean, the scripts aren't written yet, so it remains to be seen. But I think there'll be there'll be some small changes. Um, but the the lion's share of it's going to be the same. But there may be a couple of little things. I can't say too much just yet.
0: do you have any dates or anything? No,
1: no. Well, I'm told it's going into production this year. Um, but I don't have any strict dates about when. But I'm hoping pretty quickly. It's looking. I mean, it's a lot of the time you get option and things go really quiet, and this isn't going quiet and seems to be moving really quickly so I'm keeping my fingers crossed
0: I remember Candice Fox saying actually that exact comment that a lot of the time things get optioned and yeah it goes quiet and not a lot happens Mm. and with Troppo being made that she was very much like until I see that actor on the ground (laughs) doing it I'm not believing it
1: Exactly and Adrian McGinty said the same thing to me because I remember one of his early books was you know on the cusp of filming like but then then died at the very last minute so he's like until they have the camera and the actors in the same place do not believe anything so I I definitely have uh, you know understand that it may all fall over but so far so good.
0: It must be so nerve-wracking to talk about because I know even completely different but when I was given my offer to sign for my book, I was very much like until I've got that paper, until I've <laughs> physically put my signature on it. Even when I got the draft, I was like, until I've got the hard copy, um, I just can't. <laughs> I can't entertain the idea. <laughs> and so this must just be even further removed from, I guess, what you have any form of control over
1: yeah it's eh, look it's wildly exciting who wouldn't want to see their book made into a a movie or a tv show I mean it it, I'll be honest it doesn't feel real to me and it probably never will most of this doesn't feel very real it's like there's one reality that does feel real and then there's this other reality (laughs) and the two don't come together and so I guess I just put my like my work slash righty head on when I'm dealing with that stuff and just try and be as professional as I can be and I don't know how emotionally engaged I am with it fully because there is part of me that still just doesn't believe any of this has happened, you know? I don't know. It's, it's a weird one.
0: So you're about to hit the road tour-wise. What's, there are a million dates. I don't, I don't expect you to remember them all. <laughs> but what's the general course of the tour?
1: So the tour kicks off in Perth. Um, first event is tonight in Joondalup. Um, and so I'm not sure if there are tickets left at this stage because it's been booking up really quickly, but people could jump online and have a little look. Um, and then we are doing two events. We are, oh gosh, have I got them all in order? You don't um, have to have them in order. Just I forget name them, where you're going we're doing, roughly. <laughs> we're doing one in Open Books in Mosman. That one is fully booked already. And we're doing one in Beaufort Street Books, and they've moved to a bigger location, I think, to take in a few extra. So I'm not sure where we're at with that. And we're also doing with, with Stefan's Books in the city which is going to be fun because that's going to be in Dirty Nellies in the pub so it's an excuse to have a drink as well and then once that's done i, I hop on the plane on um, thursday morning and i head to sydney and i'm doing the Dimmick's literary lunch there and then i head to la on the sunday i believe so i'm going to be doing and i have the order of these wrong but la new york atlanta and phoenix with some amazing authors and then i come back to the east coast where i'll be in brisbane and canberra and Sydney then for the Sydney Writers Festival and then I fly to Ireland where I am going to Big Book Dublin I think it is and doing an event in Galway and um, and just signing books in some bookstores and stuff and then I will come home to Perth and then I shall never leave the house again <laughs> <laughs>
0: do you get any time to just enjoy yourself or is it really just no go 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 let's <laughs> go
1: it's go 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 the first day in LA I think there's seven interviews that day and then an event that night Wow. Uh, it's just boom 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 and then most days I'm either I've got I at least have a flight and an event um, possibly with something else thrown in I think the issue is to be honest with you COVID. I mean we need to get into the states and out of the states without me getting picking it up along the way okay. because once I do I can't obviously do events anymore so I'm so vaccinated, I am beyond vaccinated, <laughs> and I'm going to be super careful and just keep my fingers crossed. You know, wow, that is such a whirlwind
0: tour. I can't even. So how long, all up? How many weeks are we talking that you're away? Three weeks. Three weeks. Wow, that is incredible. So I don't even know where to go. From, where to go from that? <laughs> I can't even fathom it. So for aspiring writers listening, obviously. You've said yourself it did all happen very fast from your first book to now. What would be your biggest piece of advice? You've given lots of advice already, but your biggest.
1: Do you know my biggest piece of advice is very true, but really feels very boring. I think, and I apologize to everybody in advance, but this is the honest truth. Like it is really hard to get published, and it is even harder to be published successfully. And a lot of that you were just not going to be able to control. Like you'd love to, but. A lot of it is luck and timing and things you have nothing to do with. And no matter how hard you work, you can't move that dial. So what I would say to you is this. If you love writing, do it anyway. Do it because you love it and do it because it makes you happy. No one can give you that and no one can take it away from you. That is yours. Right. And then if you are published, then that's a great joy and it's a great bonus on top of that. And it's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. But still, the best thing about all of it is writing that is where all the joy comes from that is where all the happiness comes from is sitting at your desk and the story t- starts to take off and feel real under your hands and you're just flying it's the best and you can have that regardless of publication you know so i would say that that is my main piece of advice because whether you're published or not you need to find the joy in the writing um because that's the thing that'll keep on giving to you regardless.
0: I love how humble you are and how much you love writing but I have to ask are there ever those days where it is a chore and perhaps you're stuck in a dead end or you've just had to throw out a few thousand words what do you do in that sense to get the motivation
1: back? Oh man it is hard like it it is hard there are ups and downs maybe you get an edit that throws you you know you thought it was nearly there and it's not or you know maybe it's just your just exhausted, you're a bit sick, but you've got a deadline you have to hit, or something like that. So there are really hard days. Look, I think I'm a pretty disciplined person. Um my old job was very demanding and there were there was no room to kind of hide. You just had to get it done regardless of how tough it was. So I think that muscle, if there is one that I have is is pretty has been had a pretty good workout most of my life. I know how to work whether I'm in the mood for it or not. Um, So I can do it regardless. It is hard, but I will find a way. And, you know, sometimes it's working at a different time of day when everything else is already finished. i come back to it at nighttime, make a cup of tea, sit in the kitchen and just work for three hours solidly and feel like I'm making progress. I think you have to be able to feel like you're making progress. And that's where, you know, why I use word counts and things. It's, it's a bit artificial, but it makes me feel like I'm moving forward. Um, and at the end of the day, this is what I want to do. And you know, a publishers waiting on a book, and I can't drag my feet forever. And I need to deliver, and they need to feel like they can have confidence in me that I will deliver. Um, and I take pride in that. So those are the things that really motivate me when when the chips are down.
0: We have delivered. The murder rule is absolutely fantastic. I can't wait for other people to read it. I feel. So proud even though I've had absolutely no part whatsoever in it. I just absolutely love it. I love that you're a WA author as well. I'm claiming you even though you <laughs> moved here. We will claim you.
1: I, I belong.
0: Deborah McTien and thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time and for sharing all your secrets.
1: Oh, thank you, Shinee. Thank you for having me. And as soon as we switch off, I'm going to be asking you lots of questions about your book.
0: And thank you for listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Make sure you check out the back catalogue and while you're there, I'd love it if you left a rating or a view. It helps other people discover the podcast. If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Marapodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye.